Hello, welcome to the Empathy Machine Podcast. I'm Andrew Ford, and this is my co-host. Josh Ickes. And uh, we are here tonight to talk about Alien from 1979. Uh, Alien Alien is a film. film. Alien the film, yeah. Um, uh, Alien is a film about the crew of a commercial starship who are awakened from cryosleep to answer a mysterious distress call from an alien vessel. Stumble over my words there. But you guys know what Alien's about. We know what Alien's about, right? I think so in general. Um, (laughs) I kind of our plan is to um, touch on each of the films in the franchise. Um, But, you know, what with the the new one coming out soon um, or having just come out, depending on when you're listening to this. And uh, I think the the time is, is ripe to discuss these films, especially the original seeing as how Ridley Scott is the only director to return to the series. That's true. And uh, seeing as the original uh, holds up exceptionally well uh, when viewed today uh, in either of the versions that are available, um, it, uh, there's a theatrical cut and then uh, there's a director's cut that even Ridley Scott has said, like, I just felt like, you know, messing around. So I've recut some stuff. And they were, they were like, we'll give you money to do it, so I'll do it. I did it. And uh, it's, even he says so, he doesn't prefer it to the theatrical. Um, um, it's an interesting case of a director's cut, because normally his director's cuts are very uh, contentious and or completely different and or make the films way better. So I'm kind of curious, what, uh, what do you think of the two cuts, Josh, if you uh, have an opinion on... I don't know if you just watched one of them. You probably did. Um, um, no, I've actually... I've. Uh, watched both of them over the last couple weeks. Um, nice. And uh, we were talking earlier off air about the, uh, what I think of as the, the main thing that's been added in the director's cut, um, which is the uh, seeing Dallas cocooned uh, later in the, in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I realize now we have not talked about a character, a single character yet. So <laughs> Dallas might sound like a city at this point. Uh, but yeah, getting <laughs> to find out the, the fate of some of the characters and a little bit more of how the titular alien uh, does its stuff and what its plans are. Um, which, you know, we talked about, uh, I like that aspect because it opens up the mythology of the alien um, and like lets you know more about its life cycle. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that a lot because it definitely uh, at that point in the film it's like a um, a sort of a race to the end, a race against time, a race against the the creature to kind of get out alive, and uh, that escalates the like it, it it raises the 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 fear factor from just fear of death to like fear of like being impregnated and used as like you to just to like have an alien burst out of your chest like it just it's just that casual like. Uh, discarding, like, uh, you know, use and discard some uh, somebody kind of a thing. But the idea of just being used for that is like, uh, it's just like so much like grotier and more uh, uh, invasive than just if it killed you. Uh, I guess real quick, because I do want to throw that back to you to talk more about that. But mm-hmm. I, I, my def- I feel like I should defend the fact that I jumped right into just talking about the different cuts <laughs> of the movies before we start talking about the characters or anything else about the movies. 
I, I wanted to make sure everybody knew which version we were talking about, and the answer is both. It is both. I think maybe a, a good way to approach it is um, if somebody has not seen the movie and they came to you for a recommendation, which one would you tell them to watch first? Or if they're, if they're only going to spend, um, you know, an hour and a half in this world, which one do you want them to see? I feel like right now I would lean director's cut, but I wouldn't be upset if they watched the other one, you know, like if they watched the theatrical, I think they would get, you would still get a great experience either way. Mm-hmm. I think if you watch the director's cut, you may be like, I don't know. For me, I had a better experience watching it. I feel like. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, How about you? the, the original is the one I fell in love with. It's the one I grew up with. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, when I first watched the director's cut, um, what, like 14, 15 years ago now when it came out on DVD, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the changes were to me, it were seemed really drastic at that point in time. Um, now they, it, it doesn't seem as, um, intrusive, it doesn't seem like the, the changes are all that major and uh, it flows a lot better, which is probably how it flowed the whole time. But I was so used to the other one that it seemed jarring to, to see the alternate shots and stuff like that. Um, so uh, kind of like you, I wouldn't be mad at either one, but I would probably lean original. Okay. If it's your first time, first time uh, going aboard the Nostromo. I do think like whichever one you watch, you probably, unless, um, I mean, if you're into movies at all and you've never seen them and you watch one, you're probably going to want to watch the other. I don't know. It depends on the kind of, it depends. Yeah. Like if you well, have like a, if you have like a job, you might not want to <laughs> take the time to watch. But, <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah. I do think, um, you know, as, as we'll touch on undoubtedly uh, in the future episodes going through the franchise, um, uh, I think this franchise, especially watching the different, um, installments and then watching the, the various cuts of each installment is like a film school in and of itself. Um, the, the breadth of types of movies that are covered in this franchise is kind of crazy. When you think about the fact that most franchises are in one genre and I think mm-hmm. the, almost the defining defining thing about the alien franchise is that it skips genres, right? Like alien, this is uh, what, like a haunted house or slasher film essentially. Right. Right. Um, and then with aliens, you go on to James Cameron adventure action. Yeah. And then by the time you get to alien three, you're in like full, like, art house horror film mode. Uh, very, which uh, I haven't seen the theatrical cut in a while, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they're at least tonally similar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, very different experience uh, than either of the first two. And then alien resurrection is it's own. It's a very different thing that I think you have a better memory of than I do. Um, yes. Um, alien resurrection is, uh, for my money, and you know, it's been a while since I watched it, but I, I did like it a lot. 
Um, it's a lot more whimsical. Mm-hmm. If you can apply that to this incredibly grim world that the first three movies set up. Um, and it is more uh, like comic booky. It's It's more kind of over the top and pulpy um, in a lot of ways. So I think um, uh, let's go through the, the plot and the characters a little bit more in depth. Cause I think that that'll lead us into talking about some of these themes um, that really makes this a, uh, a classic and made it the foundation of this franchise that's still going on today. Well, why don't we start with the uh, first character that we meet? Um, that was a trick question. It's mother. No, it's not. It's not the computer. Uh, it's Kane, John Hurt. He's the first person yes. who wakes up, which I always think is interesting. I don't, it's a very, like I watched, the, like when I notice every time I watch it, he's the first person that wakes up. And I'm like, okay, who wakes up next? Do they wake up in the order that they, that they spoilers, die? Uh, they don't. Um, it's just him. And then they go, then they're eating, you know, a, a nice meal together, all of them. Uh, but I think it's really interesting. The first person to die is the first person who wakes up. Uh, I don't, I feel like it's deliberate. I'm not sure where that's going, um, but, I, uh, yeah, I feel like there's, there's something about his personality, um, that they're trying to set up there that, um, he is, uh, he's kind of gung ho. He's kind of. Um, even though it's played by John Hurt and he, he seems always like kind of like a slight man, um, mm-hmm. who would be more at home in a library than, um, you know, doing Indiana Jones type stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I think that he's kind of described as, as being, um, maybe a little reckless. And I think that his, uh, his venturing into, the alien ship, he's the one who goes down in the hole mm-hmm. into the, into the hold of the ship and, and discovers the, um, the eggs. And I think there's something about that. Like he's the first one up because maybe he's the most, he, he might be the, the go getter of the group. I can see that. And then I, it also makes a lot of sense why, uh, after he's sort of not sort of after he's incapacitated, uh, things kind of that's when things start to shift because then I mean ostensibly Dallas has been in charge the whole time and I think Kane is his second in command. Uh, he's well, I believe. I think so. Later, when Ripley is complaining to Ash that he didn't listen to her, mm-hmm. um, does she say when Dallas and Kane are off the, off the ship? ship? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, Kane is played by John Hurt. Um, Dallas is played by uh, Tom Skerritt. Mm-hmm. Um, doing, I think he's a good actor, but this is some of my favorite work of his. Um, you have uh, Ripley, of course, um, played by Sigourney Weaver, uh, mm-hmm. who is for all intents and purposes. Um, I think she's, she's even coded masculine. Um, she's, she doesn't shriek when these terrible things are happening around her. She's the one who maintains a cool head. Mm -hmm. 
throughout the entire film, which is, you know, why she's our final girl and why she becomes such a badass hero in the next ones, I think. Um, mm-hmm. That she's, I don't know, she's almost gender neutral. She is Ripley. <laughs> that is, that is right. her, her uh, identifier. Uh, and who else is in our and is in the crew there? Uh, so did we talk about uh, you didn't mention Ash. Ash yes, is our. Ash. He's this this sort of know it all jackass, right? Who's like a science officer who turns out to be a robot. Yes, an android. He's he's a middleman, um, and he is uh, he's our corporate stooge. I would say mm-hmm. he he is the. The Bond Company stooge. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's the uh, the acting arm of the, the Weyland-Yutani group, which uh, kind of gets built up more as the franchise goes on. Um, he's really the only like influence of theirs that we see, because uh, the crew is kind of free to follow or not follow the directives, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and who else do we got? Uh, then we have Brett and Parker, uh, played by uh, Brett is played by Harry Dean Stanton, which automatically means this is a great movie, no matter what. And uh, Yaffa Koto plays Parker, and uh, they both they're two mechanics who uh, kind of work in the bowels of the ship and keep it going. And uh, basically, uh, when they are woken up uh, to answer a distress call, they uh, insist on hazard pay. Uh, they're 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 not uh, they're there they're they're not. Um, too involved with uh they're not too invested in the outcome of their work i don't think they're just trying to get by you know yeah go punch the clock and then and then you know go sleep for you know 10 months um <laughs> yes. in a cryo sleep uh and then uh there's lambert played by veronica cartwright who uh i believe i think she's sort of a navigator sort of her mission or sort of her job not mission it's sort of her occupation on the ship, is that right? Um, it, it seems like it. Uh, when when they're woken up from their cryo sleep, everyone's kind of uh, dazed and confused, and they're trying to figure out where they're located. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like Ripley has an innate understanding that they're that they're in the wrong spot, um, and Lambert has to kind of confirm that. Mm-hmm. Um. So uh, there's, there's, they wake up, they have a meal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they start uh, going about their um, investigation of this distress signal that uh, got them out of their sleep. Well, at first they, they think they're almost home. Yes. And then it isn't until I think, uh, they real like so while they're figuring out where they are, I believe that's when Dallas goes to talk to Mother, which is the computer, um, and uh, Mother tell you know informs them there's a distress signal um, that they've answered and that they're not home yet and they have to answer it by company policy and that's when all that stuff comes out with like we need our extra shares or we need something else mm-hmm. and then Ash kind of steps in and is like uh, it's like uh, you know you you either forfeit all your shares or, or you help basically and so in a contract and they're like but I guess that's what we do. But, uh, yeah, uh, it's a very interesting setup. I think, um, I really like, uh, I think it's interesting the way that, uh, we're kind of dropped into this world. Um, we start off with, 
like sort of a uh, just a, a very like uh, like simple like s- s- you know uh, what am I looking for the word uh, not steady not is it steady cam steady cam shots I don't know if they're quite steady cam but um, like I, I, a lot I, of like, looks like they might be dolly shots um, yeah like just quick like establishing shots of the of the ship and everything very like uh, ominous but kind of like giving you a vibe like it's an empty ship you know and then this all kind of resolves into the reveal of the crew but. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit more about the way this is set up and shot. Oh yeah. The, um, the, the opening of the movie is it introduces you to the ship where we're going to be spending most of the time and it lets you get to know the space in like a really interesting way without actually explaining any of the, the science that's going on. Um, alien to me it, it straddles this line between hard sci-fi and like more poppy pulp type stuff um, mm-hmm. because uh, they never really get into how all the things work, but it seems like a very plausible lived in kind of world. And these establishing shots that are kind of drifting through uh, these spaces where the people are going to live uh they're going to live, love, and die in them, <laughs> essentially. Um, and, you know, it gets us used to the, the textures and kind of the shapes of things and, and what the world looks like. Um, and I think it's a very, like, controlled hand that is showing you this world. It's it's explicitly setting the scene. Um, mm-hmm. And I think... Uh, as opposed to so many things that, you know, kind of start in media res. Um, this is whatever before the action is, whatever the fancy Latin term for <laughs> before the action would be, because literally nothing is happening. Um, and it's such a great use of what movies can do, um, which is, have you drift around this place and just look at the cool stuff and Mm -hmm. really feel like you're, you're there. Um, and I don't know, it's, uh, you had mentioned that you kind of see it as part of a, a a trend or, or at least a, um, continuation of a theme of, uh, uh, horror movies at the time. Is that right? Well, yeah. So I don't know how much it was, influenced by this it could just be parallel thinking around the, you know at the same time and some of this is due to the fact that the steady cam just came out around this time so naturally a lot of people wanted to use it and shoot things differently not like like we said these are probably dolly shots um but then you look at something like halloween um which came out the year before and it ends with these shots where michael myers was or has been you know and he's like uh, there's this, and then there's the breathing kind of takes over the soundtrack and you kind of have this fear like, you know, like, oh, he's like, he could be anywhere. And then you open this and, and I mean, you know, you're, you walk into Alien, you know you're going to see a horror movie and then you see all, you know, these specific locations. You're like, it just kind of builds this atmosphere and, there's, you know, you have this, this like lilting sort of like ominous Jerry Goldsmith score uh, over it all. Um, and then uh, you kind of are, are shown this, you know, just has this way of building the sense of like dread. You're like waiting, like something's going to happen. Um, and then it, it sort of tracks you through, you know, introducing you to the area, showing you kind of where everything is. 
um, sort of by it, it, it's ominous in the sense that like nothing's happening and you're wondering what, you know, you kind of are like just going along with it, waiting until it shows you waiting until the movie starts, you know, it also has, has an air of like, uh, like getting you comfortable too and getting you kind of like used to it and like easing you into the, the movie, trying to like maybe you let your defenses down a little bit. So I think that's really interesting. Um, but then like a few years later, it's another John Carpenter movie that, uh, seen, I feel pretty confident it was influenced at least partially by this. Uh, the Thing, his remake of The Thing, um, has so many shots of. I don't. Believe, it doesn't open with these shots. It opens out in the dark, running in the snow and stuff. But it has all these shots of the 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 uh, Arctic base, like where the, all the you know just down long shots down the hallways, like mm-hmm. you know just you, sequences where you follow the dog walking around, which are incredible and the best dog acting ever. Uh, but not what we're here to talk about, I guess. But uh, a very, uh, very like building atmosphere, building like the scene, kind of lulling you in, you know, to like a false sense of security, maybe. I think it's very interesting seeing, and obviously, of course, The Shining uses steady cam like crazy. But uh, it's very yeah, interesting well, seeing all these filmmakers use it that way or use sort of like kind of getting you into putting you in the space and having you comfortable in it and then proceeding to kind of turn the screws on you a little bit. Well, and, and I think that, um, I mean, actually, I know you didn't make a direct comparison to Kubrick there, but I, it kind of would be, um, I think, a, a good comparison because this this plays as an overture. Almost. Oh, totally. Like, it's, it, and without explicitly underlining it, it's showing you some of the themes, like um, the, the womb-like and you know for lack of a better term um like vaginal uh motifs that that kind of go through the whole movie when you're looking at like these long series of tunnels um that are essentially tubes and um the 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 room where everyone wakes up is like this flower that's opening when all their um their sleep caskets open uh, mm-hmm. you know and I, I think that you know, I think famously everybody knows like the, the Giger design aliens um, are super phallic <laughs> and uh, and grody and slimy. But I think even in this mechanical kind of half of the world, the less organic half, um, a lot of those those sexual themes are kind of carried through um, because the movie is. Uh, pretty explicit about its um i don't know if it if it has a whole lot of arguments that it makes about um sex and sexual violence other than uh as an experience Mm uh you know i I it definitely um a little bit later once once kane becomes the mother father i don't know even what he is he's the incubator for these eggs that Mm -hmm. the the aliens uh insert into him um what do they call them in the handmaid's tale i haven't been watching oh i don't know i um i (laughs) I, I brought the book on this trip um there you go so so i'm behind whatever they call them that's what that's what kane is in there (laughs) yes yeah um but yeah he he's like a brood mother (laughs) or what have you um, and it, it really is, um, I don't know the, the way that the, um, the ship is shot 
is very controlled. And I think that's in direct comparison. You pointed out a thing that I've never really noticed during one of these opening shots. Um, the cameras maybe jarred a little bit and there's a sound like it hit something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you see these pages of a book fluttering um, as the camera drifts past it, which seems like an operator error or something because it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of wind moving around in this ton- or in, in this ship, in this cockpit um, in the middle of deep space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, as you watch this, the movie at times is very controlled, and I think um, there's a lot of attention paid to detail. Then there's other scenes that are handheld. Um, there's some argument scenes that happen later where the focus is soft on the characters, um, mm-hmm. or like it, it feels like they were um, a little more modern, um, you know, kind of in a 2000s sense of just trying to catch the action with the camera and rack focusing back and forth and didn't quite wind up on the right um, mark a couple mm-hmm. times. And I think that's where he, he definitely, uh, Scott definitely differs from Kubrick because Kubrick, you know, would have done it over and over again till every aspect of it was perfect. And there's something very um, kind of distancing about that. And I feel like Alien manages to keep kind of the grandeur of something like 2001, but has this very alive feeling because of kind of the raw um, nature of the characters and the way that they interact. And it's almost um, Altman-like with the just the mm-hmm. spilling of dialogue um, over each other in the, in the first half of the movie. Oh, totally. And I think uh, it's very interesting that you talk about you mentioned how it's very controlled until, you know, until it's not. And I feel like there's a clear correlation between like, I, and I think it's something that Scott used to as a, like, it's a, it's a limitation that Scott used to his advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever the alien shows up, uh, the alien tends to, you know, there's a scene, for example, where, uh, Bert, not Bert, Brett, uh, Harry Dean Stan's character is, uh, out looking for Jonesy, the cat. And the alien kind of, it's this long, you know, it's just a simple shot of, of uh, Harry Dean Stan, and then you see the alien kind of drop down behind him. Mm-hmm. Like at first there's like chains, you know, you see in the background at first, and it's just a static shot of it drops down behind him. And then when it actually attacks him, it's a series of quick cuts, you know, and some of that is he's cutting around effects. Some of that is he's cutting around for, you know, probably a rating, you know, at the time. I don't right. know if he's worried about getting an R rating, probably. Uh, but you don't want to show too much gore, and it, you want to make sure what you show looks realistic. It's very quick. It's like a flash. Like, you don't see it hardly at all. It's like a quick, the mouth punctures a head, and then it's out, you know? Mm-hmm. And you don't even know, you're not even sure if you saw that. Um, and I think it's very interesting. I feel like he uses limitations of the form, you know, either whether it be whether the effects look good enough or for the sake of content that he was allowed to get away with. Uh, he uses that so that whenever the alien shows up, it di- sort of dis- disrupts the flow of the the otherwise natural flow of the film from scene to scene. So every time there's an attack, it's very visceral and very like in the moment and very like, uh, even to the end where you get to, uh, not to jump ahead too far, but where you get uh, Sigourney Weaver, uh, Ripley's got, she's in the space suit and she turns to look, which I don't think there's any possible way she could have seen it given the, you don't have peripheral vision in the suits 
There's like it's all right. cut off. Anyway, m- minor complaint. But she sort of turns around and the alien's right behind her. There's this quick cut, quick cut, quick cut, and you almost can't even follow as she like hits the you know to open the door so the alien gets sucked out. She grabs you know to, to stay put and then she tries to shut it out and uh, she shoots it with the harpoon gun and it you know hangs on all that stuff. It all happens so fast, but it's like that quick cutting style is. Uh, it, it works as well as it does because it's explicitly in contrast to what's already been established as the normal flow of the film. Which right. I think is very, it's just very smart filmmaking. It's just like, you know, I, I, whether it's, I mean, whether it's deliberate and it's the only way he ever wanted to do it in a vacuum, perfect way to do it. Or if it's the way he was forced to do it, it works either way. And it's about so part of filmmaking is taking limitations that you find yourself with and, and, and making them work to your advantage. Sort of like, the shark and jaws. Uh, if we want to use another contemporary example, yeah, and I I totally agree. Um, and I don't know if you uh, watched with the um, the commentaries uh, on, um, but Ridley Scott directly talks about the his choice um, to of styles when when approaching the alien spacecraft. Um, mm-hmm that uh, the, the model didn't really hold up to scrutiny. The, the, the one that they had, that was the correct size for the shots that he wanted. So um, he decided to shoot them with a video camera in the, in the video relay feed coming back into the ship. Um, mm-hmm. So you have the Ash character watching through this video feed that's already scrambled um, and staticky. And so it, it hides the imperfections of this uh, of the model, but it mm-hmm. also is this like it serves the story and the style of the film. Um, so it was this once again, like you were saying, this great way of taking something that's limitation that's a shortcoming and really utilizing it. it it's not even just. Um, trying to negate the shortcoming of it, it really, he utilized it and uh, it made the alien ship seem even that much more alien and um, kind of upsetting as far <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, when, when you're watching that, that broadcast, um, it, it feels very, uh, once again, alive and kind of, um, I don't know, it's, that's, it's a, it's a foothold in this world that is entirely fantastical that you understand a video signal coming back and not looking great and Mm -hmm. that you can't make out what this, uh, this, this terrible, you know, haunted house that your friends are going to be walking into is. Um, and it's during that sequence that, um, I think Ripley, uh, Sigourney Weaver's character is shown over and over again to kind of be the only one who uh, maybe read the manual of <laughs> <laughs> of uh, what to do on the ship, um, mm-hmm. uh, except for Ash, who has a secret manual that was given to him by the Wayland Utani group. Um, but. Uh, Ripley seems to be the, uh, I hate to say den mother, but she um, repeatedly 
uh, I noticed in earlier scenes when they're debating back and forth about the who gets what money and what they should do with this this distress beacon they found um, that she will be the plane of focus in a group shot. She is the one who holds the camera's attention. She is the one that um, e- even though Dallas is the the captain nominally. Um, he's, he kind of seeds control, um, which is, you know, a question that I had watching it this time, uh, specifically is, I I think that I would like to grab a drink with captain Dallas. (laughs) I don't know that he's a good captain as far as it goes. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough call, especially because like, I'm, uh, not a hundred percent clear on maybe he and Kane, are like somewhat similar and I feel like he's higher than Kane cause he has access to mother, but I feel like Kane's like his second in command. So I don't know how that's delegated, but yeah, he seems like he's, he's, I mean, he's not, it's not like he's a, a captain of a ship. Like he's running a nuclear submarine or anything like that. Or right. like navigating through like, you know, troubled waters with pirates or something. I mean, although maybe there are space pirates, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, he, uh, he's kind of a management role, you know, that doesn't love the job, but like knows enough to do it, to punch the clock, to not get people mad at him, to get along with people, you know, mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah. I think, I think, I think I, it's tough for me to call him a bad captain just cause I'm not sure what his roles as a captain in this capacity are or what right. his, his job would require. Uh, but the fact that we're even asking that is, is a testament to like the, the, uh, way the film's grounded in a reality, like a very clear reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's interesting on its own, but, uh, yeah, he definitely, um, it's interesting. You say that, uh, uh, or that you notice that Ripley's like sort of the, in the actual focal point of the frame in a lot of this, because, uh, I know one of the things that, I mean, ever since the first time I saw alien, I pretty much, I mean, I knew that Sigourney Weaver was the main character, um, but if you watch it for the first time and you're able to watch it, fortunate enough to watch it in a vacuum, um, then you kind of are able to see people die off, you know, that you expect to make it to the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like you expect Dallas to be like a big character or you expect, and even in the early drafts of the script. And I think that stuff, some of the stuff that they even shot, uh, Dallas and, and, and Ripley had a relationship, a romantic relationship, right. uh, which I think is interesting. Um, and I think you get, I think because there's, because they don't include that relationship. Um, I think that's, I think that was very smart, uh, because I think that, uh, kind of, um, I mean, it would in a way, I guess, make certain things more tragic, but it's not really about the tragedy of losing, you know, it's, it's just about the, the, the horror and about the trying to survive. Right. Um, so I think, uh, it's, it's very interesting because, when you when you watch a movie like this, you you think you know who's going to make it, and then when they don't, it's like it's it's a it's a really great way to like upend the stakes. It's sort of the deep blue sea effect, right? <laughs> Where uh, you got Samuel L. Jackson giving a big speech, like Samuel L. Jackson does. He's going to lead everybody. He's going to save the day. He's going to get the snakes off the plane, whatever. Right. Oh no, 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 he's he's not. It's, right. It's uh, and I, I really like that approach. I mean, there's plenty of movies that do it, uh, but uh, what's interesting as a, I mean, another good example is Alien 3, 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of characters in Alien Three that, as you meet them, you're like, you know, they're they're more recognizable actors, and they don't last that long, you know. Right. Uh, especially major characters that are set up, you know, with major relationships, and they don't last that long. Uh, and so I think it's very, it's it's something that this franchise does really well when it when it when it you know sets out to do it. Uh, Aliens is an example where they didn't really. I don't really think that was what they were going for, but uh, it's a very. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a, what, like why it like, I guess it's, it's tough to upend expectations every time. Obviously I feel like after a certain point you start looking for certain people to, to die because, right. it would, because it would be unexpected. So I think this one, uh, if you're, if you're lucky enough to see it without knowing that there's a whole franchise and there's all these other movies, I think it's really, it's really surprising and shocking, like how it plays out. And I think that's really I think it still has that power and I think you can still, if you watch it, even knowing you can still imagine it having that power, you know? Yeah. And I, I definitely think that, um, because you do think that it's a, just a science fiction movie. Um, because it's, it's not a movie about a killer alien until it suddenly is. Um, and it seems like it's about all this other stuff. Um, you know, there's uh, Halloween is is only about this event. It's not, you know, there's not a lot going on in Laurie Strode's life that would be um, uh, movie worthy. How dare you? Okay, you're right. You're right. <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, it's you know, she's she's gonna be upset if um, Ben Tramer. Yeah. Yeah, Ben, not Billy. Yeah, if, if Ben <laughs> doesn't take her to the the dance or what have you. Um, so, uh, yeah, this, you know, there's a, I think that there's a movie that you could watch just about whatever the, I don't know, or the mining, I don't know what they do. They're space truckers of some kind and they're coming Mm -hmm. back from a job like that. (laughs) That's what we know. Um, uh, and I do think it's interesting that, um, that's kind of the setup for this film is that they're just these working class folks who wind up having this contact with this alien that um, it's a little bit Hitchcocky because it's like this every man kind of thing getting sucked into a situation. Um, but it's interesting to me that James Cameron goes on to make the sequel, which is drastically different. And then years later makes the abyss which is incredibly similar. <laughs> but once again, that upends your expectations about who the villain is going to be. Um, and I feel like in Alien, uh, it, Dallas, um, yeah, he's the leader. He's our kind of our macho dude. He's got a nice beard. Um, and he lasts exactly zero seconds against the alien. Is, mm-hmm. As soon as he is put into proximity with the alien, um, he's killed. I mean, he his plan was kind of terrible. Uh, you can't go into an enclosed area with this thing. Like, it's it, well, it have all the advantages. To be at the time, they don't. I don't think they know how big it is yet. Yeah, this is true. Also, um, I mean, even we as the audience don't really know how big it is because each time we see it um it's like 
non-linearly grown. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we do get, I believe at least one scene of, um, it shedding or, or finding the shed skin, um, from its Mm -hmm. exoskeleton. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that thing grows fast. It's, it goes from, uh, a kind of a cute little chest burster (laughs) to a taller, and and bigger than Yafat Kodo in a couple hours. Yeah, and it um it's it's interesting actually. You mentioned the scene where uh, Dallas is in the sha- uh, the air shaft with it, and uh, there's a uh, I TA'd a, a film class where we were teaching kids, you know, like you know different basically the principles of like shooting and you know so like how to like compose a, a shot, how to like set you know compose a frame for a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how to like cut and how to do all this stuff. And we were teaching about the importance of sound. And that was the clip that we used for sound. Cause there's the, you know, beep, beep, beep. And right. they're like, you know, you know, and then it's like, then, then it, you know, gets, then it ends in the static, you know, but the way, like it's still like all these kids who are like jaded little pieces of shit. They all jumped out of their seats like immediately. Cause it's so, <laughs> it's, it just, it still works. It's, it, it'll always work. It's like one of the best, uh, quick jump scares and it's literally just some guy going like i mean it, i can almost imagine the mystery science theater like version where they're watching and they just go like ta-da you know like because it's like yeah. hello <laughs> and it, it, it almost looks silly if you like actually like pause on it or anything but man it, it works so well and it's all so it's so i mean it's the performances and the audio and the movie that's built around it but the audio too like the sound is uh very great there and actually i mean we could definitely talk about how great the sound mix is throughout because there's a lot of really interesting touches there's the space the entire uh, spaceship has its own interesting sound mix to it it has like a character of its own uh, especially with uh, in, in the opening sequence again there's like almost like a dial-up modem sound when it turns on you know like mm-hmm. uh you get these kind of like you know crunchy like ib like a not ibm dot matrix printer sounds you right. know like uh you get this sort of uh and then there's just like sort of a hum, you know, the whole time. And there's very like very particular with like the effects from like the alien, very like, like when he slinks down behind Harry Dean Stan, there's not much sound. If there's any sound, there might not be any sound for the actual alien. You hear like the chains, you hear like the water dripping, which looks like rain, but wouldn't make any sense to be rain. Sort of right. like water dripping for a reason, which I love because cool. Why not? Um, and then, yeah, you, you have that like nothing. And then, and then it kind of, you know, raises into like the alien attacking and like scream and loud, you know, it goes like, you know, sort of like loud, soft, loud, like, like the pixies, <laughs> <laughs> which um, we're talking about earlier, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> so the, um, uh, I think I can piggyback on that a little bit, okay. uh, because something I noticed with the sound and the visuals was kind of this, um, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, the repeated motifs between the ship that we're on and the, the alien ship where they, uh, where Kane happens across the eggs. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so the ship where the eggs live seems to be much more organic um, or some kind of um, a hybrid uh, technology where... I don't know. It, it looks, um, it, it looks like something, uh, HP Lovecraft might've, inv- might've come up with, mm-hmm. 
it's it's horrifying and amazing um but the the way that the tubes run in the tunnels and everything there's uh, echoes between the two ships and explicitly like the uh the sounds there's a scene where ripley is confronting the engineers um parker and um you know the other one uh for a second i thought we were talking about prometheus my bad (laughs) you said the engineers and i was like the engineers wait um jump to the wrong movie um sorry you (laughs) it's yeah yeah when she's talking to them in the and there's all the air that he has turned on yeah 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 so he um yeah koto's character uh parker is like kind of venting all these pipes um and it it seems like i don't know a steam factory (laughs) essentially (laughs) it's just loud hissing and they can't have their conversation really because it's so loud and and crazy um and he's using the his control over the mechanical world to try to intimidate Ripley um, mm-hmm. and try to put her in her place. And uh, it cuts right from that scene to the explorers going into the alien ship, which has, um, there's like jets of, uh, I guess the planetoid they're on releasing gases next to them. And it's mm-hmm. like this, this visual echo between the two, but also uh, the, this thing that went from this constant droning hissing sound to mm-hmm. these spurts that in an otherwise very quiet area, which it, I didn't think anything could get more upsetting than the constant hissing. It turns <laughs> out the, the spurts when you don't know when it's going to happen. It reminds me of the, uh, um, uh, the fire swamps and um, the princess. <laughs> Pride. It's yeah. like, uh, you know, it, it just seems like um, there's these, these correlations between the natural world and the man-made world, um, you know, which I think is echoed throughout the whole movie with the, um, I mean, the ship is called Mother and mm-hmm. the alien uh, is essentially, the, the face hugger, I guess, is essentially the mother of the alien and... I don't know the the fact that um, it seems to be these females that are the aggressor, um, and yet Veronica Cartwright's character uh, Lambert is, I think, coded very traditionally as as a woman um, in a horror movie. I mean, mm-hmm. it's she's she's kind of. Uh, a little bit catty towards the beginning of it, of the film, but definitely by her end, she's just shrieking and, um, you know, a, a puddle of snot and tears. Well, and she even gets uh, a very specific shot. It's the last shot we see before she's presumably killed by the alien or, or cocooned or whatever, where the, t- the alien's tail goes between her legs, like starts reaching yes. out, like just like a, and it's very sexualized and it's like, uh, which it's very, uh, interesting. Um, I guess I just wanted to say real quick, um, because Ridley Scott's spoken a lot about how the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a major influence on this film and on him as a filmmaker. And he's called it a perfect movie. And I think he's right. 
but uh, every perfect movie has one major glaring flaw, uh, and that <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre's flaw would be Franklin, uh, who's very annoying. Oh yes, uh, Franklin. Um, I, I, I it's not really a flaw. It's 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 part of Texas Chainsaw. Love it or hate it, uh, it's pretty great. But um, he uh, he just whines the whole time, and he's miserable, and he sucks. Yes. Uh, and then I think that the equivalent of the Franklin character in this movie is uh, is Lambert. Not that she gives a bad performance. She's a much better performance than the actor who played Franklin. Mm-hmm. Um, no offense to the actor who played Franklin. I think it's Paul something. I no, I, he, he's heard it, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, he. Uh, it's it's a very interesting... Uh, and I think it's a, it's a, something that Ridley Scott... It's a... It's a something that he does, I don't think is intentionally as he, as he should. Um, like if he, he kind of lets certain characters kind of behave in stock ways in his film, Mm -hmm. in in this and Prometheus. And I've been told alien covenant has some of the same problem or not been told. I've read, uh, from people who've seen it, it has some people do stupid things that they wouldn't do in real life or you would imagine they wouldn't do in real life. Um, or people behave in the way they need to behave for the plot to go a certain way. And I think maybe you can make a case that Veronica Cartwright's the closest thing that this film has to that, her character, um, where she doesn't, she never develops uh, her own agency as a character, I guess. Like she kind of follows people to do things. The only time she ever really seems to have any agency is when she gets mad at Ripley for almost leaving her outside. And that's, you know, over in five seconds. So it's, yeah. it's an interesting, yeah. Um, it's, it's a little more pronounced in the um, director's cut um, mm-hmm. than in the, the, in the theatrical. Um, I, th- I think she gets a little higher um, and pitchier <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the director's cut, and it's more of a uh, direct um, accusation. And I think that it's it's interesting that like the only time the characters really go very long without sniping at each other is the dinner scene where the chestburster comes out. It right. seems like the, the only one where they're not complaining and picking on each other and, you know, disagreeing with each other. Yeah. They're like all best friends. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> It's this moment of celebration because you think John Hart's character is, has uh, fought off the the alien mm-hmm. or that it died and didn't work or whatever, uh, you know. But but we know that <laughs> John Hart is um, an eight and a half months pregnant right there. Uh, whatever, whatever, however many months you are before you before you before it comes out your chest. Oh yeah, that's where, babe, that's where babies come from, right? That's where babies come um, from. Uh, no, uh, so one thing that I want to mention, just cause I feel like I've never, you know, in, in the, in the, in the, in the spirit of, you know, clerks where they talk about, um, how the independent contractors on the Death Star to turn the Jedi, uh, you know, get a, they, they get a bad rap cause they're not technically empire people and they get killed anyway by the rebellion, you know, in, in the spirit of that, um, I did want to talk about how the idea that like, if they never, you know, uh, if they if they had just gone straight to cryo sleep instead of stopping for a meal after John Hart woke back up, uh, you know, then then there's a I mean it probably would have been a lot worse for everybody, 
because then the alien would have gone all the way to Earth. It would have been cryogenically frozen inside John Hurt before it burst out. And then when they got to Earth and woke up and got were about to get there, then they would have had to deal with it. And the ticking clock would have been we have to get rid of it before we get to Earth instead of we have to get rid of it and blow everything up before we get to, you know, well, we have to get rid of it and blow everything up. Um, right. So well, and, think, and that is the, um, I mean, that's the result that, that they wind up coming to mm-hmm. uh, later in the franchise. I mean, that's where, right. where, yeah. where J- Joss Whedon winds up pushing it to um, in Resurrection. And it's, it's interesting that that's this thing that kind of could happen over and over. Um, and here it's not even stated. But it is like this implicit th- threat that, oh God, if if this could would get back to the rest of humanity, mm-hmm. uh, how quickly would we no longer be the apex predator on our own planet? <laughs> I mean, like like immediately, <laughs> like, yeah, yes, like super yeah. quick, super quick. Well, uh, as we know, uh, aliens and predators. Uh, predators have been hunting aliens on Earth in the Antarctic for years. Uh, every uh, like. Every few hundred years, they have a ceremony where they uh, they uh, tor- torture an alien queen to give birth to aliens so they can hunt them because yeah. they need to prove that they're the ultimate predator. And uh, it's uh, you know, uh, it's it's not. Unfortunately, it's not in this movie. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we still have to talk about it if we're even going to talk about those movies. At any rate, um, <laughs> the, uh, so. That does touch a little bit, though, on uh, kind of what I wanted to bring up as my my filmmaking lesson. We should have like a little theme when Ooh, we go. Drum roll, please! Yeah. time for the filmmaking lesson. <laughs> filmmaking I'm lesson. Gonna, yeah, yeah. Uh, of the uh, uh, hmm hmm. Let me go back. The thought is that we will kind of present a different lesson that we've taken away from the films that we watch that we are going to apply. I think it probably in our future film endeavors or that we've already applied. Um, and that you, the listening audience at home could also take and run with. Um, so the, the thing that I really noticed and appreciated about this, um, especially this time was, uh, the, uh, the economy with which, they dispense information in this film. It is, you're not beat over the head with anything. Everything just kind of comes at you and it's all given pretty much the same weight. Like there's some techno babble about um, the engines and it really is given almost as much weight as um, the fact that this is a, um, Wayland Utani um, sponsored ship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all of these things uh, wind up coming at you as an audience member, I think, in a very straightforward way. And it actually reminds me a lot of something. Um, I know I said it was Altman Asker in the dialogue earlier, uh, but it's, it's very close to like a Michael Mann film or more classically like a Howard Hawks. Right, like you've got, um, you've got people going about their work. You know, Michael Mann films are about these guys who are 
super good at one particular thing and they're not going to wait for you to catch up. They are just going to start giving you the details and mm -hmm. there's no real, you know, fancy like flights of dialogue in here. Um, and there's none of this kind of Christopher Nolan. We're going to sit down and explain everything to you over and over again. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. All right. Make continue. Just I, I, I'm raising a little. I I like Christopher Nolan. I think some. I think he does some things really well. Maybe he's not Michael Mann. Yeah. Uh, no. No. He he does, and I think that he's um, he's maybe hunting a different beast. So. He brings different ammo to the game. Um, so, yeah, and this, um, especially because it is, I mean, it turns out to be this slasher film of sorts, um, that in the first half, when you're getting all the information that you need, um, and they're, they're kind of setting up the relationships, um, it's, there's, there's no sitting down and well as you know bob we need this and this for the thrusters mm -hmm. to work or as you know bob we've had problems with with this before it's all kind of catch as you can and but it's so immersive that um yeah, a lot of those details you might not even catch i think until repeat viewings you'll just go kind of go along with it um and, you know, it's the, the classic George Lucas thing of you don't have to understand it. You just have to uh, sound like you believe it. Mm -hmm. And I, they, they pull that off really, really well in this film. And uh, I think the fact that all these little seeds were sown in this movie about the, the corporation and the alien's life cycle and um, the role that uh, androids play in this, this world... Um, you know, they went on and I think all the other movies, including the prequels, spin out of these little details, which weren't fully formed here. Mm -hmm. um, and I happen to think that they pull it off for the most part better than uh, the Star Wars franchise, which in the original trilogy sets up this wonderful world where you don't understand everything it just right. has a, a great wealth of possibility um and then in the you know prequel trilogy uh dispels a lot of it it gets rid of a lot of the mystery and a lot of the um it, it, you know midichlorians it's midichlorians i'm upset about the midichlorians still it's midichlorians <laughs> but uh. um <laughs> I, I do think that uh, you know, both movies, um, and to that, once again, it's his, it's, that's his world. He can play in it how he wants to. Um, but I think this thing that they have in common, at least for being 70 sci-fi movies, is that they present this much larger world that you don't have to understand every aspect of. Um, and here on the Nostromo, like, we know that it's a commercial vessel. That it's hauling some kind of ore, um, and this is the crew. We, the only way we understand the relationships is seeing the people interact with each other um, and go about their work. And I just think it's really fascinating that 
um, you don't have to have these big exposition dumps. Um, and when you do in this movie, they are disguised as a conversation. It's a back and forth rather than just one character vomiting it all out. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's something that everybody could take away. Um, because this movie is not, um, there's nothing realistic about it, but it feels very naturalistic as you're going through it. At least I think. Because of no, I, I agree. Yeah, no, I, I agree that it feels very naturalistic. I do think, yeah, uh, when you say, like, I don't think just spoken exposition is the worst thing in the world. Uh, no, but, no, I, I. but yeah, no, I understand. Like, different movies are trying to do different things. And when you, when, you're making like a thriller, like a mystery, like a, I don't know, a heist movie where it's like, here's the plan. We're going to do this. We're going to do this, you know, and they show it usually, but it's still like exposition and stuff. I mean, you get different people use it in different ways and some work better than others. But, uh, this is definitely oh, a strength of this film is that it doesn't over explain itself because that's part of what kept people coming back to it. It's part of what keeps people coming back to it now. Uh, it's part of what what makes it still scary, makes it still kind of like uneasy, is because there is still this mystery to it. Even after we've had prequels, you know, about the engineers, not the ones in this movie, but the big white tall ones that seeded that planet Earth with our race or whatever they did. I don't know, something like that. Something um, like that. I don't entirely understand but it, but it was they drank, cool. a, yeah, they drank a drink and they turned into mush, um, and then we're that mush. <laughs> but uh think about it uh, no i'm just kidding uh no but even though we have you know things um uh like that have tried to explain it we've had sequels that have tried to like explain a little bit um about the corporation and, and a little bit more about the world uh it still feels very everything in this movie feels very natural like in terms of the, the progression of the uh events the way the characters act seems natural um, in like the, it just seems like a, an environment that you can imagine someone existing in and, and they act the way you would think the people in that environment would exist. It's very, very well done, uh, with very minimal, um, not, not just minimal exposition in terms of dialogue, but very minimal, like, uh, there's no, like, I mean, they, they just kept, they show you the set obviously. And they show you things like there's a secret, like a silent sequence where Dallas just, walks into you know mother and is using this key card and puts like three different things and like does a different thing and then turns a knob and then it opens and it's like they don't explain what the hell that is you know is it like security is it like, yeah it's probably security so then you're like oh, okay i figured that out without them telling me you know you don't have a scene where you don't have a door marked security you don't have you know it's it's little things like that like it's uh, the same way you illustrate character through action uh mm -hmm. you build the world through action I think is a good way to look at it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there we go. That's what I was trying to get to. <laughs> <laughs> you got there. Uh, I like it. Too. You got there. Ah, all right. Um, and I like Christopher Nolan movies. I yeah. And I, I do think that there's a, probably a really fascinating discussion to be had about those because I feel like, um, Christopher Nolan films are this thing that I, I appreciate but don't enjoy by and large. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, but you like movies that are metaphorically about movies. Well, I mean, doesn't everyone, 
uh, to a certain extent. Well, I also uh, so, will, I will also reduce a movie like any movie to being about movies if I can. But yeah, Inception's like a, the king of that. Like yes, yeah. Um, so, do you have a, a a takeaway? Do you have a little a little nugget of um, filmmaking goodness that, that we could apply in the future? Well, uh, my, mine is a lot more a lot more general, a lot uh, a lot more uh, kind of vague, and probably a lot less helpful <laughs> for most people. But uh, maybe not. Um, what, what I my big takeaway was. Uh, because I, I went through and I, I didn't listen to the commentaries, but I did. I did watch some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, um, and I guess my ultimate takeaway that I thought was really interesting. I think a reason the movie works as well as it does because this was like Ridley Scott's second feature film. It was his first studio film. Uh, I believe he funded The Duelists, which is his first feature film. He funded that with money from his commercials that he'd been make, making at the okay. time. Um, because I don't, I don't think, and then it was distributed later. Um, but, uh, he got this basically on the strength of his commercials and on the strength of that film. And he, uh, you know, he didn't have a, he, he had a pretty sizable budget for a first time filmmaker even then. Um, and he, but he still, you know, he wanted to build this massive set, the space jockey set, okay. uh, which everybody, everybody knows, you know, as soon as you mentioned, it, oh, it's a space jockey. So right when they before they go into the egg room, uh, when they're first exploring the alien ship, there's the ship, you know, there's the HR Giger walls, you know, this crazy design, and then there's a space jockey he designed, and apparently actually like was up there working on it, like chiseling at it, like himself, um, to actually get it to look just right. Uh, and uh, that whole thing, that massive, it was a it was an enormous set the actors were actually in. They weren't using a ton of we're using unnecessary like forced perspective or rear projection or anything. They actually built this big set and uh, he, you know, went to the studio with it and they had already doubled his budget based on his storyboards apparently, which is also kind of a neat thing. If, if you can draw and you get a studio job, give them your storyboards and work really hard on them and they'll raise your budget. Maybe, I don't know, but uh, they, they had doubled his budget uh, based on that because they saw the scale that he had in mind. And um, he wanted this, uh, I think it was a, the budget was like eight and a half million. And he wanted like a million for this set. And they're like telling him like, it's only, you're only here once. It's only here for like five minutes of the movie. And he's like, this is what makes this movie different from the Roger Corman movie that you don't want to make. This is, you know, this is this, you invest in the set, you know, this is what people will walk away remembering. I don't know if he actually said that, but uh, I know he, I mean, he said, he said the thing about the Roger Corman movie. Uh, and I was like, that's, he's a hundred percent right. Because when you have, you know, it's not just about throwing money at something, but it's about, it's about knowing what battle to fight and when, like when to stick to your guns and, and why. And, and, you know, granted, is he just a complete genius and he knew that people would be talking about the space jockey 50 years from now? No. But what he did know was that this is something he's never seen in a movie before. This is something that people, if nothing else, it'll be something people have never seen before unless they're seeing HR Giger's work. Um, and it'll be something that people, if the, if the movie works, it'll be something that people talk about after the movie. And it'll be something that sets the movie apart from other movies like it. Um, and it, it is, and it was. And, and uh, yeah, so the lesson is pick your battles and, and know why you're fighting them. And, like, pick the right battles and know why you're fighting them. You won't, rent, you won't win every battle. Like we were talking about earlier, like, he, he, t- he took certain limitations and used them to his advantage. Um, 
And so you you don't get you don't get a million percent you know of what you ask for, but you get if you ask for the right stuff, then you can make the right movie out of it. I think that's really important because you can't yeah you won't always get carte blanche. In fact, I don't think anyone really ever gets carte blanche unless I don't know Netflix gives carte blanche to people. Yeah, I, I it, de- it, it depends. But yeah, generally speaking, you're not going to get everything you want if you're making a movie. No, and I think it's. Having the no, wisdom to know what you do need is important. Well, and, and I'm a big believer in the um, Orson Welles talking about that the absence of limitations is the um, like the death of creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I, I do think that there's um, the, the same brain that came up with the idea or insisted on the idea that they had to make the space jockey. Uh, the way that they did um, is the same brain that said, Oh, we can build the, the landing gear for um, the ship at like half size or three quarter size, and then use kids in spacesuits instead yeah. of the adults. And like, uh, I think, I think they maybe overcranked the film a little bit to give it like this weird floaty quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not just this, um, I don't know, kind of maverick, I'm going to stick to my guns and, um, emotionally, you know, die on this hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really is. He, he seems to be very pragmatic about it. Um, and, you know, I think w- without the, the space jockey set and, without the the egg room set um which is actually i believe a combination of set and matte painting mm-hmm. um oh definitely uh, i mean if if you listen to the commentary and listen to really scott talks about the fact that um w- when you see the shape moving inside the egg that it's his hands and some gloves <laughs> and he's he's just like flinging stuff around and that he had to send um, people out to the butchers to to get the meat that went on top, uh, and that the the face hugger, the inside of the face hugger, is made up of sh- of shellfish. Mm-hmm. It's oysters and stuff, <laughs> and they just l- kind of layered it in there. And he was so he knew that um, what he wanted, and he also was willing to put in the work. And like he did a lot of that stuff himself. Um, or he oversaw it directly. And I think that that's a big important part of that choosing your battles thing is um, being willing to go the distance and being willing to be the person sticking your hand in, in, a, in a bucket full of uh, clams and mussels and arranging them uh, in a latex glove <laughs> to make it look like an alien. <laughs> Um, you know, cause the, it really is. I think that this, uh, this movie, like it's just, it's such a, I don't know. I feel like a direct bolt from Ridley Scott's creativity, you mm-hmm. know, is kind of where, um, a lot of the things that make this movie different from other similar movies comes from. 
is is him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, him and I mean, it's it's not just. I mean, people could say like, but what about H.R. Giger? And it's like, yes, H.R. Giger obviously is important, but like, you know, and not to not to say that he's not, but Ridley's the one who's like, we're using his stuff and we're not changing it because the studio was like, we'll bring him into design stuff, and he was like, no, we'll just use his using it. We'll right. just do what he gave us. You know, this looks great. They're like, yeah, but it's like super like weird and sexy and and but like in a death way. And they're like and he's like, Yeah, no, that's what's great about it. You know? And and it's about uh I think it's one of the things that's helped him uh continue as long as he has in the industry. It's not just mm-hmm. that he's just apparently uh indefatigable. <laughs> he's just yeah. he won't stop working. He's like a big budget version, like a big budget blockbuster version of Woody Allen at this point. He's making a movie every two years, you know, on a massive scale. Right. Or now it's it's almost a movie every year. I think yeah. it's every two years. Anyway, um, but yeah, he's uh, he's doing that. But it's also he just he has an eye for talent mm-hmm. um, and an eye for things that are interesting that hasn't failed him yet. I don't think like an eye for interesting projects. I think he has a you know. I think that's another important lesson. Not to not not that I get two, and that you know we get a oh, bunch. But on, well, you, you know, it's about refine your palate so that you know what's good, mm-hmm. and don't just you know, don't settle. You know, look out look out for what you know is good, and don't settle. Unless, uh, you know, find a not that that almost contradicts my pick your battles thing, but not really. Uh, you know what? Let's forget the don't settle part. Let's focus on the the, the keep your palate refined. Yeah. Like Keep yourself sharp. Know what's good. Know what's bad, and know what's new and fresh. Stay on top of things, and just yeah, you know, have an eye for. I mean, he's always he's consistently worked with great DPs, great mm-hmm. composers, great actors. I mean, great scripts for the most part. Not always, but kind of. I mean, I think even when we get to Prometheus, like it's not the best script in the world, but he was working with really talented screenwriters. Um, to make something, it, it may not have turned out perfect, but uh, yeah, I mean, and I, you, you I work with Cormac McCarthy for of all people. I mean, yes, he knows his stuff. <laughs> uh, which uh, you know, we'll we'll delve into our feelings on Prometheus a little bit more uh, when we mm-hmm. get there. Um, but I think maybe now is the time for um, uh, what are we going to call it? extra credit. Um, um, f- further research? I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, like it, advanced studies. Oh, advanced Maybe. studies. That's good. Yeah. The the, the branded content. But except <laughs> not, not Brought good. to you by Red Bull Cola. No, just, that's, that's not true. We don't have any sponsors yet. No, uh, you're uh, occasionally tripping over your words, I think, is, is brought to you by Red Bull Cola. <laughs> there we go. That is, uh, yeah, that is true. Uh, I don't know what the ingredients are because they're written on the can in Austria because I ordered these from Austria because they don't sell it in the United States anymore. And I don't think, I think it's just because people didn't like it. I hope it's not because it's unhealthy. It's, um, but we'll you, find out. <laughs> you have way too much, uh, what is it? Taurine? Is that, is I got, uh, I'm torqued out on taurine, man. Uh, you're hopped up on goofballs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm getting I'm feeling pretty goony right now for yeah. sure, um, but yes, advanced studies, Josh. Yes. Let's discuss uh, what okay. what's uh, yeah. Go ahead. So, uh, kind of each time that um, we get on the the rabbit hole of one of these movies, um, 
we might both wind up in the same place. We might wind up in different places. But I think with this one, we both did a little bit of extra digging and watched a movie called Planet of the Vampires, um, which is in some circles um, kind of regarded as either a spiritual forebearer to uh, more modern uh, horror sci-fi or a thing that totally got ripped off (laughs) (laughs) depending on who you ask apparently yes Uh, i think uh to be to be charitable to the the creative team behind alien um which i think it's clear we both want to be at this point because we love alien um uh planet of the vampires it, it alien seems like the kind of movie that uh you would come up with um, and, and you would write it and you would be like, this is incredible. How has no one ever thought of this before? And you would forget the fact that when you were like nine years old, uh, you were sick home from school and you watched a crazy weird movie on like, uh, AMC or something. Uh, or like you had recorded a movie, you rented a weird movie from the video store and watched it with your buddies. And it was, and you forgot what it was called. You don't remember it, but you remembered it had this weird shaped spaceship that kind of looked like a, a fat horseshoe. And then you had like, uh, you know, these, these people that were, you know, uh, they land on this planet and they were attacked by a parasite, an alien parasite. And then, you know, there's certain other parallels, uh, that come into play, um, that include, they wander, uh, you know, some people wander into an abandoned ship and, uh, they find giant alien skeletons in the ship of people who had been attacked by the alien parasite on that planet before. Uh, which I can't imagine any other movie that we've been talking about for an hour and 17 minutes uh, that does that. Um, but it was made in 19, it was released in 1965. So it's been out for a long time uh, before alien. Uh, uh, but at the time it was just going to be in like a, it was sold in like a cable package of like Roger Corman cheapies. Uh, it was actually distributed by him uh, in American international pictures um, and it's, uh, you know, it's probably popped up on cable a bunch. It's probably something Dan O'Bannon or Ridley Scott saw when they were kids. Uh, and it, you know, it's got a lot of similarities, but it could, it could just be parallel thinking if you're charitable. Uh, and even if it is, even if you say they did kind of take the, these great concepts from it, it doesn't take away from the fact that alien does something very different with them. And it doesn't cheapen the fact that Planet of Empires is actually a really neat little fun atmospheric sci-fi horror movie. Yeah, it was. Um, it, it's one that I have uh, had around um, for quite a while. I believe uh, did Warner Brothers put it out? Um, I know Kino Lorber put it on Blu-ray. Okay. Um, I had the DVD forever. Um, oh, it was one of those MGM like midnight movie. There you things. go. It was an MGM. Um, and it, you know, I bought it because, uh, it was kind of campy and fun looking. Um, and if I'd ever watched it, it was probably, I, you know, put it on his background as I was doing something else. Uh, but to actually sit down and watch it, like this movie is beautiful. First of all, mm-hmm. uh, just the, uh, we should say it's directed by Mario Bava. Um, and the, the color palette and kind of the, uh, the neon aesthetics of it are, you know, I think pretty fantastic. It, um, it stands above a lot of other, um, 
cardboard spaceship movies <laughs> uh, <laughs> because of the the design aesthetic that's that's in place here with the the coloring and the the costuming it looks like um, uh, Tron basically like these kind of skin tight leather outfits with with bright yellow piping um, <laughs> and uh, the insignia badges that everyone wears that kind of denotes their rank. Um, you know, I would, I would proudly wear one of those on my, uh, on my denim jacket. Uh, <laughs> these great, like enamel pin looking things. Um, so yeah, I think that this movie, um, you know, not only has correlations with, um, uh, alien, I think it's also got a lot in common with both versions of, uh, the thing, mm-hmm. uh, both the, uh, Howard Hawks, was it Nyquist? Um, uh, Nyby, Christian Nyby. Yeah, Nyby. Uh, you know, original and the, the Carpenter reimagining. Um, I've also been watching a lot of, uh, Star Trek recently, and it <laughs> definitely has a, a lot of that flavor of, um, that these, these explorers are more, um, academic, uh, mm-hmm. in, in their pursuits originally. Uh, and you know, they, they kind of get in over their head with this thing that they don't understand. Um, and, uh, it also has a little bit of, uh, a couple twists and some moralizing like my probably favorite television show of all time, the twilight zone. All right. I'll stop you right there. The best TV show of all time, hands down, bar none, the twilight zone. Okay, good. I think uh, if you account for the fact that it was as it holds up as well as it does even today, uh, from mm-hmm. the late fifties, early sixties when it aired, and the amount of story, different storytelling, like that was tried, the quality of the stories that were told, the I mean, yeah, I would I would say the influence it's had is incalculable. I've actually had I get really mad when people say that anything else could ever be the best show ever. <laughs> just because like if you don't I mean yes we're living in the golden age of television yes the wire is great breaking bad's great mad men is great there's a deadwood's probably my one of the shows that i've watched it's of the golden age is probably my favorite but when you you're talking about the best show of all time and you you can't just ignore history and you're not going to sit down and watch every episode of all in the family no matter how good it is because there's so much of it with the twilight zone you do want to watch every episode there's only five seasons that means like 150 episodes but they're all individual episodes. They're all half an hour. Well, not all of them. Some of them are an hour, but they're very, they're all very good. They're just great little. I mean, it's just great. It's hard to. We could do a whole episode about the Twilight Zone, but it would it, we would need more time because it's so good. And like, um, I, yeah, uh, yeah, I could do multiple episodes about, about the Twilight Zone because it is one of my very favorite shows, um, and uh, I feel like you know. We're already on a little tangent. I'll try to wrap it up quickly. <laughs> but the um, the Twilight Zone is something that was very formative to me in its um, uh, humanist approach to genre stories. The fact that it, it told spooky stories and sci-fi stories um, and sometimes funny stories that had a strong um, pulp or genre slant but were really metaphors for 
uh, hey, let's all be cool to each other. <laughs> like, yeah. it was very formative um, uh, for me. And, you know, my kind of my worldview with regards to um, both storytelling and uh, hopes for humanity. You know, Rod Serling kind of um, coming in as the voice of reason in a lot of these episodes where he points out the folly of the characters. Um, you know, I appreciate the uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents as a television mm-hmm. show. It's, it's pretty nihilistic though. Um, yeah. The, the, the running gag of it is that um, yes, by the end of the episode, uh, whoever is doing evil ha- has their comeuppance. But then Hitchcock comes on and kind of undoes that with his little monologue. Um, he always puts a, a darker spin on it, whereas Rob Serling comes out, you know, it's in its very similar kind of host segments, comes out and generally gives you a little nugget of of hope or how things could have been better um, to leave on. And I think that there's, you know, a, a lot of um, his personal life and views that come through that story or through those stories. And even though, you know, he wasn't the, the writer of all of them, it's a lot of them have that flavor that, um, kind of cockeyed optimist, uh, view of the world, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, if, uh, so I do have a way to bring it back too. Uh, but before I do that, I also wanted to say the outer limits is very good too. It just doesn't, it's, it's a lot more, uh, it doesn't have that, like you're talking about the, the Rod Serling, like authoritative voice, the kind of guiding force of reason and uh, sensibility uh, behind mm-hmm. it. Um, but it, it also has some very neat, like, turn, you know, uh, imaginative and uh, arguably cinematographically more interesting stuff is in The Outer Limits. But to go back to Planet of the Vampires real quick. Uh, or to get back towards that, I do want to uh, mention that it, it, you mentioned Star Trek, and I, I think it's <laughs> we kind of gl- went past Star Trek, but this kind of predates uh, the original series and uh, <clears throat> it would serve as a very good sort of a it's like, it's like a, a dry run. On the, I mean, obviously, none of the people who did this worked on Star Trek, as far as I know, but this is a very uh, it has a similar vibe to the original series, like a like a big bonus original series original series episode, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's real. It's that's one of the things that's helped it, it helped this movie age better than I think it would have otherwise. Is it has a lot of it's like an early reference point for a lot of very specific genre influencing things. Oh yeah, definitely. I think that it's um, you know I, I picked out. Uh, not only the Star Trek stuff, but also there's a sequence uh, that to me seems like it was lifted for um, Star Wars Episode One. Um, you know, probably my favorite sequence of that movie, actually. <laughs> it was kind of crazy to see it play out here. Um, but, you know, uh, it's in Star Wars, it's the sequence when they're they're chasing Darth Maul. Um, and like the, the laser doors shut in front of them, which mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's ever explained like what those doors are doing or why there's a giant pit in that room, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, it's all pretty, pretty great. And the, um, 
as you'll find out, I'm, I'm a sucker for little moments in movies. <laughs> to me, there's something, um, you know, a, a, about a small detail that a filmmaker puts in that tells you a lot about their sensibility. And the fact that George Lucas has this moment where the, the, um, the two sides kind of have to face each other through this laser wall without fighting. And well, it, Qui-Gon does like that badass, like meditating. Yes. It's like, yep. I'm going to fucking meditate asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think like, I've cursed the entire podcast and here we go. Just let them all, <laughs> get them all in. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's one of the things that makes me appreciate, um, you know, the, the, the Lucas, the, the prequel trilogy and, um, uh, appreciate not love, uh, those films. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, this comparison, there's a scene very similar to it where, um, they're running through airlocks and they have to wait for the doors to cycle as, uh, the, the crew of the, the ship that's landed on this vampire planet, um, uh, is, is they're chasing one of their members through. And, uh, as soon as I saw it, it just struck me as a very similar, um, and it, it would be, you know, in tone, it's pretty close to a Star Wars film. <laughs> it's, it's, it's campy yeah. and, and pulpy and kind of fun in that, in that way, you know, as opposed to the, um, I love alien. It is, uh, it's kind of comfort food for me. I will put on the alien films, especially when I'm feeling ill. Um, mm-hmm. because there, there's something about the world that I just really enjoy. Um, and you know, I watched them when I was sick as a kid. So it's like this great thing. Um, but they're, it's not a happy place. The planet of the vampires is a much more, uh, you're still going to die, but it's, it's a fun <laughs> ride at least. Well, and there's, you know, it's, uh, like we, like we, you mentioned, it's, it's sort of twilight zoney. Uh, it has that little, little twilight zone, little nudge that, uh, sends you, yeah. sends you out, uh, with a, uh, well, you're like, oh, like they went there, but then you're also like, oh, they went there. Yeah. Um, it's nice. Yeah. And I think that everyone should go, um, you know, experience that for themselves and, and get to enjoy the movie. Uh, so where can they, they find that? You said, um, who put the, the Blu-ray out? So Kino Lorber released a Blu-ray. Um, let me check real quick and see if it's streaming anywhere. I don't think it is. That's, I'm, I'm guessing I, it could be on Shutter. Um, I watched the whole thing on YouTube. Um, there's a okay. channel called 42nd Street Grindhouse that seems to have a lot of um, old fare like this that uh, I don't know if it's the exact legality of it. But after that, I did turn around um, and purchase a copy on iTunes. Um, um. Well, cool. Well, yeah. So I, I wonder what version, I mean, I'm assuming you watched, cause there's like a re the, the one on Blu-ray now has included stuff that's never, that wasn't even on the DVD. So I'm curious oh. what's on, what was on YouTube. I'm not sure exactly what was included. Um, honestly, it's a movie that I kind of like a shorter version of than, I mean, it's, it's only like, it's less than 90 minutes as, as it is anyway, but yeah. Uh, pacing wise, it's a lot different from, uh, from any modern film or, you know, that's not like 
Yeah, art housey and slow on purpose. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you uh, another mystery science theater reference here, if you like um, a lot of the movies on mystery science theater, you would probably be be in the bag for this one already. Um, because it is it is cheesy and campy, but also beautiful to look at and really fun. I think so. Mm-hmm. Which, once again, that could be a whole own show because I'm sure we could talk about. Uh, <laughs> I, I know we could talk about uh, the the new MST3K reboot and uh, all the feelings associated with that. I'm like savoring. I have four episodes left, and I'm waiting. Mm-hmm. I just I don't. Yeah, first of all, it does take me a little bit to get through them just because they're kind of, you know, they have lots of little breaks built in anyway, which is nice. Um, but yeah, the, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I don't want to let them go yet. <laughs> so, um, I, I don't know if you have talked to um, our, our mutual friend and actually the guy who introduced us, Eli, mm-hmm. uh, about the new MST3K, uh, but I went out for lunch with him a couple of weeks ago. Um, Mm -hmm. and we both were having the same problem because we put on the original series, um, as Mm -hmm. background noise when we fall asleep, there's this like Pavlovian response to the show now. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You, you put it on and it is like, um, it's like gently falling asleep, uh, near some friends that are being jackasses towards a bad movie. (laughs) Well, which is what we do every Halloween for 24 to 30 hours. But <laughs> yes, but that is, uh, uh, Andrew is referring to the fact that for the last several years, um, at least once a year, we have had a 24 hour ish movie marathon around Halloween. Um, Always it, 24 plus, never less yeah, than 24. Yeah, yeah, never less than 24. And um, of course, during that point in time, you, you have to sleep at some point. Uh, which I think we, we kind of got the programming down to let's, let's put two bad movies in a row that nobody mm-hmm. really wants to watch and everyone will kind of pass out during those films. Um, well, we, but, I think everyone picks a film they think they might want to try to sleep during, you know? Yeah. That, that, that also happens, <laughs> which um, my, my favorite is um, was your pick. Um, was it the first or second year? Uh, what was what was it? It was uh the 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 Scooby Doo sequel. Oh, Scooby Doo Two Monsters Unleashed. Uh, yeah, that's probably the best. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I definitely slept during it too. I think Chip was the only person who stayed awake the whole time. Our mutual friend Chip, and uh, he yes. hated it. I think. I think he and, yeah, and me. Uh, I think he also hated me. <laughs> as soon as soon as it started, I I got up and excused myself from the room and went and slept in the adjoining room. And I believe well, I, I angrily texted you because it was too noisy. <laughs> uh, well, I, I in my defense, uh, it had been you know what we we've, we've gone too far. I'm okay if we talk about the Twilight Zone as a tangent for hours, <laughs> but now that we're talking about Scooby Doo too, I think the time has come for us to say goodbye. Um, uh, that's probably a good wrap up. Yes. In, in, uh, in conclusion, uh, the twilight zone is the best TV show ever made. Alien is incredible. Uh, my lesson is 
for, for anyone is uh, pick your pick your battles and, and have the wisdom to know which ones are worth fighting and why you're doing it. And Josh, your lesson is uh, my lesson is um, think about how you are parceling information out uh, to the audience and to the characters. Um, it's it's super important that the audience doesn't feel talked down to and that you're not explaining something on screen that the characters already understand. Um, have them experience it and the audience will, will pick up what's happening. Um, I think that's a great thing uh, for... I've seen so many films at film festivals um, made by, you know, people at the beginning of their careers, hopefully. Um, but so many times they'll show a car driving up to a house and then show the door shut on the car and the person walking towards the house. And you don't need that. Like just show the car and then show them knocking on the door. We, we know what happens in between. Um, you know, editing was invented for a reason. So <laughs> Give your audience the benefit of the doubt, um, and I think that uh, you know, generally speaking, they'll be very, they'll be a lot more engaged because of it. And also, check out Planet of the Vampires. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's, because it's really fun, and uh, it's yeah, it's worth a uh, rental or uh, YouTube uh, checkout, or uh, also the, all the films of Mario Bava are very good. Yeah, I think um, if you do rent it on iTunes, it's like two ninety nine or something. Um, Did you say two ninety nine for rental? That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> and you have that's like 20, going to Blockbuster. Twenty four whole hours to watch it. Wow. Um, so yeah, uh, definitely check that out. And uh, if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, you can write to us at. Uh oh crap! What's our email address? It's oh come on. Uh, I, I teed it up for you because you were the one who registered it. What is it now? It is empathy machine podcast at gmail.com. That's empathy E M P A T H Y <laughs> machine <laughs> podcast at gmail.com. Uh, and yeah, uh, you can uh, email us anything there and then we'll, uh, uh, do you want to, do you want to drop your social media deets? Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I believe, what am I? Am I Joshicus or Spartacus? See, we were, we didn't prepare for this. No, we did not prepare <laughs> for this part. This was, uh, we have the script here, like, here's how we're going to do. And then at the end, oh, boom, sneak attack. Oh, Surprise, yeah. social media stuff. So, uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll, we'll just, uh, you know, get a, a good clean out shot um, in the next episode. Uh, and I'll have all my all my stuff listed. You can you can check out my work at uh, the seventy nine hawks dot com. You can see a lot of the music videos that I um, have DP'd or directed, um, and maybe some movie trailers for things that I've made. And uh, Andrew uh, might have worked on some of those things as well, depending on what I get put up there. And uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, a ford eighty eight. Uh, the number is eight, eight. Um, and I mostly just retweet bad political things that make me angry and stuff, uh, or things that I think are funny or, uh, you know, weird Twitter things, especially, uh, like, uh, <laughs> do you know who drill is? Oh yeah. Drill, drill is pretty fantastic. Yeah. 
my favorite thing, I think my favorite tweet probably ever is uh, uh, another day at Betsy Ross's flag museum. People keep asking me if they can fuck the flag. I said, buddy, they won't even let me fuck it. <laughs> it's just, it's so good. Uh, that's the, the, that, that very much typifies your, your sense of humor. And I love it. <laughs> So if you want to see that retweeted in your feed, that's where it is. Um, and yeah, we should get this up pretty soon. Next episode, we'll be talking about aliens for sure. Uh, yes. And uh, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, until then, uh, hopefully we're going to get these up uh, prior to slash around the time Alien Covenant comes out. It'll be out pretty soon. Uh, and it looks pretty good. I've heard good things on the internet about it so far. Uh, and the bad things yeah, I've heard don't make it sound too bad. I'm definitely excited. Um, and I will be there, ticket in my sweaty little hand, uh, as soon as I possibly can get to it. So, As will I. Yeah, I just realized right. I have to go see it on Thursday night because I have to work all weekend. Fuck. All right. It's not, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's not. It's not. It's just going to be a full IMAX theater and... It's just, yeah, I don't like it when it's full because then I have to get a seat next to a stranger. We can talk about that later. We can talk about that off air. Yeah, yeah. You, you might need to go talk to somebody about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I sat next to this kid in Rogue One and like the film, cra- they showed it, showed it in 70 millimeter and the print kept crapping out and the kid was like loud and stuff. It wasn't a bad, I was excited that he was so happy. Like it didn't really bother me that he was talking to <laughs> the whole movie. I was like, fuck yeah, this kid's get like, this is a good movie. He's having a blast. I, I would love to be this kid when I was growing up. Like, just you know, I'm walking around with a lightsaber. Like, the it was great. Anyway, uh, <laughs> until next time, <laughs> I'm going to stop the recording. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.